Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Zach, it's been an interesting summer so far. It's starting to heat up, but honestly, it's been a pretty cool summer. Yeah, no, it's it's been good. I've, I've appreciated it, especially compared to last summer. I remember that we had, they had a couple of weeks of scorching heat. My grass got blazed. It was really? terrible. So I'm hmm. looking forward to... Uh, you have a sprinkler system? Yeah, you, know, you got a sprinkler oh, system, nice. Ryan. You know what? You know what? You don't need to start the podcast off being mean to me. I got a sprinkler system and I know how to use it. Okay, <laughs> I don't but, have one. But last so summer, anything... anyone anyone who had a yard last year knows what I'm talking about. Sprinkler systems did not stand a chance against that heat. Really? Well, yeah. I don't have a sprinkler system, so you know, okay. I'm not as fortunate as you. <laughs> okay. So, um, but yeah, man, we got an interesting podcast coming up. You know, the first topic we're going to be talking about today is an opinion piece from Market Watch. It's the S and P 500 is ridiculous, and that's. The yeah. author's words, not mine necessarily. So that will be interesting. Just kind of talking through why it might not be, um, you know, quite the safe haven you think it is. Um, a lot of people think it is. Yeah, and then we uh, we're looking at a good article from Financial Times. Uh, it's actually David Booth, one of the founders of Dimensional Funds, the funds we use. He has an article about why the wisdom of the market crowd beats AI. It's actually Ooh. a pretty interesting read. So looking yeah. forward to getting into that one. AI is a big topic these days, so that'll be really interesting. Uh, by the way, my name is Ryan Borders. I'm a certified financial planner, and I am one of the advisors here at Richard Young Associates. And my name is Zach Albanese. I'm also a certified financial planner and advisor here. been here for a little over two and a half years. So Yeah, so we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. We're exclusively up every week. Um, well, on Friday afternoons, you can find us like on Spotify, Apple iTunes, um, but also you can log on to our website, moneymd.net, uh, and listen to our show. We have a lot of shows you can go back and listen to old ones. We're getting close to 500, so you have plenty of listening material out there. Um, but also go to moneymd.net where you can you know, just link to us, ask questions. We answer a question on the show every week. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get started with the financial fact of the week, Zach. All right. The financial fact is about gambling. Ooh. Gamblers have lost $1 billion at blackjack tables in Las Vegas last year, which is the most since twenty or 2007, hmm. and the second highest amount on record, which is reported um, from the Wall Street Journal. And it's not just bad luck. You know, Vegas casinos have made subtle changes to blackjack to take more of your chips, including increasing table minimum and shrieking payouts for winning hands. The house has typically paid three to two when you get uh, 21 on the first two cards, but more... Vegas blackjack tables are shrinking the award to six to five. So in, in saying all that, basically, don't gamble. Yeah. That's the financial tip. Yes. And the fact is, yeah, it's just it's a losing game. The rush does not translate to winnings. It is it is it's just a losing game. There's a reason those casinos are so nice and so yes. big and the house is gonna win. Um they're there to make money, so they're not gonna make it easy to win, obviously. Right. So yep. not a good way to use your money. If you have some fun money that you're okay with going to zero, losing it all, go ahead, but just know that it's not a way to make money. It's not a way to make money. And that that mentality of, you know, I'm gonna make I need to make money quickly, therefore I'm gonna gamble is the exact mentality that, you know, leads to you losing at all it's just um it's not good planning and it it doesn't work and you hear the stories of the people it works for 
and, you, and then it builds up only only more in your mind that you can be that person and and that's the dream that actually leads to your demise so yep yeah good good financial fact that came from morning brew it's a financial newsletter every day uh really good stuff that leads us to our first topic um and speaking of gambling i guess you know the s&p 500 is ridiculous and here's why it's the title of the article this is an opinion piece from brett Ahrens. this is at market watch and really it's going to be talking about you know the index is effectively just bet a bet on a handful of stocks um, so Zach, you know, the standard and poor's 500 S P 500 is by far the most important, most followed and most owned stock market index in America and the world. Hmm. Yeah. You, that's what everybody talks about, especially right. last decade. Um, it supposedly tracks the 500 biggest companies on the U S stock market. It is the standard benchmark for equities. Um, if you are invested in, um, in the stock market, especially through mutual funds or ETFs, um, your portfolio is almost certainly tracking the S&P 500, either directly or indirectly. And so um, if so, do you think your investments are diversified? That's the question he's asking. Um, okay. Uh, the S&P 500 has become ridiculous, is what Brett is saying in this article. Um, it's uh, it becomes so, he- so top-heavy that it's effectively just a bet on a handful of stocks. So if you want to bet your retirement on the fortunes of a small number of companies, that's your choice, is what he's saying. So, but you should at least know what you're doing. Know you're doing it. Um, and he says he suspects most people have no idea. So if we look at Apple um, alone, now accounts for nearly eight percent of wow. the S and P five hundred yeah. uh, by market value. So pretty heavy. Uh, that's more than the bottom two hundred companies uh, in the index um, aggregate. Um, so really, if we just put another way, if you invest in a typical U.S. large cap mutual fund, you're betting on more more of your money on Apple alone than you are on such a household names like, you know, Walgreens is a couple of the names in here, um, you know, the Olive Garden Group, um, Ruth Chris, you know, that they own all those, um, Royal Caribbean Cruises or Carnival, um, a couple names in there as well, um, Molson Coors, things like that. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, you know, and Apple may be a wonderful company. They do a lot. They produce a lot. But, you know, for $2.8 trillion, you know, if I had to choose, you know, would you rather invest in one company or these 200 other companies, yeah. you know, that it, that it beats out in, in uh, representation in the S&P? So and it really doesn't end there. If you invest in the S&P or, you know, an index fund that tracks the S&P, you're investing... 25% or one quarter of your money in just five companies. I think this is probably the, yeah. you know, the most fascinating point here is that the five companies that make up a quarter of these this this index is are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Nvidia and uh, Alphabet which you know is Google. Um and and that's so when you think about it that way that's way more those five companies are way more than the bottom 300 companies in the index which is just accounts for 15%. And really not too far short of the amount you're investing in the bottom 400, which is 29%. And so really, if you think about it, you know, you're, you're investing in five companies that really dictate the direction of the S&P. So, yeah. And, you know, we probably should go back. Um, we have some good materials on how much those top five companies change over time. Because in the moment, it feels like this is never going to change. But NVIDIA is a newer top five in there. It used to be yeah. Netflix, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, NVIDIA, is, you know, boomed recently with, especially with COVID and chip shortages and the need for these chips. And then now with AI, I think just in the last month, 
they've had some new technology yeah, with AI exactly. that, that really boosts them forward. So, But mainly, those top fives change more than you think, and it's amazing. Like If you go back and look at the history of the top five, um, how much... You know, like like think of like Kodak used to be on that list, IBM, you know, mm-hmm. companies that used or even GE, I believe, you know, was on that list. And how back in those days you thought, well, this will never change and how things have changed and pretty quickly, especially when it comes to just looking at investing. Um, so we talked about uh, later in the article here, but how can this be called diversified is basically his point, right? If right. We're talking about five mainly top-heavy stocks here. The U.S. index is now starting to look like some of those bizarre European stock markets where a handful of national blue chips totally dominated the indexes. So, you know, in the late 1990s, um, when Aaron's worked in London, he remembers writing about how four or five stocks accounted for a quarter of the FTSE 100 index by market value and how crazy it was. You know, he was talking about that back then. Um, And it's no coincidence that the FTSE 100 index has been a you know mediocre investment since then. Um, even the uh, even through um, though a broad, truly diversified portfolio of British stocks would have made would have made you bank back then. Um, so the overvalued mega caps dragged the overall index down. Uh, so he's kind of given the same warning uh, signs that he was giving in the '90s about the FTSE 100. Uh, kind of what he's talking about with right. the S&P 500 now. Yeah, you know, the alternative to owning the S&P doesn't have to involve just owning small company stocks or international stocks or no stocks at all. You know, the the right way to think about diversification um, is, is much more complex than just, you know, not one place but the other, but actually thinking about owning the right kind of asset classes, yeah. right? Um, so, you know, one option, you can hold mid caps. Another prob- probably better is to hold um, just... A, a more diversified equal weight portfolio. And I know the way that sure. we, you know, we invest is we we want to capture asset classes that have historically done really well. And there's yeah. there's true value premiums in there. There's true, you know, we use an asset class called profitability that is like the S&P, but it tr- it's focused more on companies that are actually profitable and not just large because there's a big difference there. And so, yes. yeah, I think when you're doing your asset allocation diversification, you, it's not just, hey, I own a lot of things. It's what are the kinds of things you own. Correct. And that's really, really what matters. Yeah. And I mean, just going back to the argument here, I mean, 500 stocks, if we're just talking about the SP 500, is not enough. And right. then this is even arguing, hey, it's not even, it's more just five stocks are the majority of the weight. So it's exactly. really not diversified. So you're taking a big bet that, you know, I mean, the one thing we talk about here is the lost decade with the S&P 500. What was it, 1999, 2009? What was the average was negative one? Yeah, negative 1% a year, yeah. Two, uh, 2000, for 2009, the, yeah. For those 10 years, years. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, that's a portfolio killer, especially if we're saving for retirement. So what we preach here is, hey, um, be highly diversified. Own portfolios that own over 10,000 stocks, 10,000 bonds and uh, stocks and bonds. Um, you're not taking too much risk in one area of the market. Uh, and then all, from there, have a plan that has a high probability of success um, mm-hmm. to be able to live off of. And keep investing, um, even during down markets, as well as uh, during good markets. And um, historically speaking, that has always rewarded investors, uh, those who are disciplined. Um, so we're just we're just really warning people, hey, just don't, you know, don't take a bet on just a few stocks. That's a very dangerous way to invest. And, you know, a lot of people have been burned in the past. And uh, Brett Ahrens is saying, yeah, he's seen it before. And who knows what will happen in the future? We can't predict it, but uh, we can always learn from the past. That's right. 
So yeah, I think it's a good uh, refresher reminder. You know, yeah. it's not just five. It's not five hundred equally weighted stocks. Sure, yeah. it, it really is front loaded by these five. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Top heavy, I think is better way to say. I thought that was a good topic. I just thought, you know, good to review that, um, especially in today's climate and environment. Um, But, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about is the question of the week. Um, And this is going to be a little bit longer than usual. We're going to kind of talk through it because it's a good question. Um, And the question is, what would a recession mean for stock returns? Okay, so a lot of people have been asking that question. I'm sure we've addressed it on the show. Uh, But we, we want to bring a little more data. Uh, mm-hmm. to this discussion. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, recession concerns have been a fixture in the news lately, um, prompting many investors to wonder about what factors go into recession announcement and how economic downturn would impact their portfolios. So we get that a lot. I'm sure you and you and Steve are getting that. I get that. Oh, yeah. Um, All the time. But, you know, <laughs> recessions may understandably trigger worries over how markets might perform. However, investors should be aware that recession announcements are backwards looking. Okay, so in contrast to the forward-looking nature of, of markets, <clears throat> uh, recessions are typically determined using macroeconomic indicators such as employment rates, consumption, and income data, and gross domestic product uh, GDP growth, um, information that is rapidly incorporated into the market price. Um, in fact, recessions are often officially declared after the market is already on yeah. the path to recovery. I, I think that's a really important point. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we got to remember that. Um, so consistent with forward-looking expectations, average U.S. equity returns have been positive after the onset of a recession, right? So that's the big thing we kind of want to talk about here. Yeah. You know, the S&P had, had positive average returns following recession start dates that were similar to overall averages across one, three, and five-year time horizons over the period of 1947 to 2022. So the historical data suggests that investors can benefit from a, a disciplined approach that avoids making investment decisions based on lagged economic outcomes. And like you just said, Ryan, a declaration of a recession is a lagged indicator it's saying what has happened but it's not it's not forward looking and so typically like you said recession actually happens when the market's already um, recovering and priced in so in short you know history shows that markets incorporate these expectations way ahead of the news yeah so let's look at an example look back at the global financial crisis right that was a big one (laughs) yes Uh, the official In recession announcement, so the official in recession announcement came December 2008, a year after the recession had started. Right. But by then, stock prices had already dropped more than 40%. Mm-hmm. Although the recession ended uh, May 2009, the announcement came 16 months later, by which the time uh, the U.S. stocks had rebounded. Um, yeah, and we're, you know, we're looking at a graph here, uh, and... Uh, Looking at when the end of the recession was announced to the top of the market in 2007, like it's pretty much fully recovered by that time. And so when the announcement happens that the end of recession is here, the it's almost too late to say, okay, now I'm going to get back in the market, especially if you, if you left the market because you were afraid to then say, okay, now I'll get back because the recession's ended. But that's you know, again, market is almost fully recovered at that point in 2000. Was that 2010 that it's officially announced? Uh, if I'm reading the graph correctly. The end of recession announcement is after 2010. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, just just to say, that as you're saying, the you, you can't go off these lagging indicators when it comes to the market. And the most disciplined way to 
handle a recession really and i know it can be cliche because you know yeah. people hear it over and over again but it's just riding it out being diversified it is the best way because you can't time it you don't ever know nobody would have guessed the covid recession right. nobody would yeah. have guessed to recover that quickly and so when you don't know you ride it out and you make sure you got a good good equipment you're riding on and yeah, anytime you're trying to time markets, we always say here, you got to be right twice. You know, you need to you yep. know when to get out and then when to get in. And and that's just, if you look at the data, people do not do that well. Even people that are professionals don't do that well. So, you know, we're just a word of caution because, you know, there is still chatter of recession potentially mm -hmm. coming. And maybe there will be one, probably, I think. But we don't really know. And markets have already priced that in. And a great example Steve always gives, or I've heard him say a few times, markets are kind of like a, F1 car, they react very quickly. They're moving very quickly to things uh, compared to like um, the real estate market's more like a, a big ship, right? It takes a long time to turn, takes a long time to stop, but once it gets going, it's going in that direction. Um, so markets, you know, stock market is just very quick, usually very ahead of everybody's conversation. Um, yeah. So you just were, you know, just want to have caution there as well, you know, not to, you know, react to the news of the day, you know, Tuning out the noise is what we say here. So I thought that was a good question of the week, a little longer, um, but that leads us to our second topic. Yes. So the second one, we're talking about AI. This is a piece in the Financial Times by David Booth, who's the chairman and founder of Dimensional Funds, as mentioned earlier. And so the question he's wrestling with in this article is, can artificial intelligence help pick stocks? And more specifically, can investors use AI to determine the fair market price um, of a stock or a bond. And so I bet a lot of people with all the, the excitement over AI would probably say, yes, yes, they can. AI, you know, they're gonna, it's gonna change the way stocks are picked, you know, and given recent advances, that makes sense. And and what's interesting is David Booth actually says yes. You know, he says, yeah, sure, AI can determine the fair price of a stock or a bond. And you know what? I think my AI is better than the ones out there. And you know what his AI is, Ryan? What? The market itself. <laughs> yeah. So he says, basically, the market is the artificial intelligence we've had all along that is telling you about the kind of the best way to pick stocks is to just follow the market. So for example, he says, pick a stock, check the price. Why is it that exact price? Because an equal number of buyers and sellers think they are getting a good deal when they sell or buy it at exactly that time. You know, they make, may make those judgments using every piece of information available to them, but, but it's, you know, information that's both public and private. And so the market is the world's largest information processing machine, which creates a price for every publicly traded stock and bond. So David's basically saying, let's just use that. It's public. It's out there. It's available, so that's his his AI of choice. And can I just say this? Where I feel like this AI thing just like exploded this year. It came out of nowhere, and that's all. Yeah. I mean, I hear about. I'm like, you know, I don't June or January first. I was like, I don't. I never remember topics on that. Yeah. Maybe I'm disconnected in that in the tech world. I was like, where did this come from? But I guess they've made a lot of advancements recently, and that's why we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, he also says these prices are set in an environment where no one knows what's going to happen. So in that sense, it is a giant model that is humanity's best and constantly evolving guess on of how each company's stock or bond will perform. So Booth goes on to say, hey, despite all the promise of AI, 
he says he prefers to accept market prices rather than prices from algorithms. Large language models, uh, the types of AI that powers tools such as ChatGPT, which we hear a lot about these days, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are intended to understand and generate text that seems as if that was made by humans, not predict future outcomes. So that's really interesting. Yeah, so the, it's not predictive, but rather it, it uses data that's already available. And so what's interesting about AI is it can generate potential scenarios based on learned patterns, but it struggles to account for unknown factors or real-world changes that come outside their training data. And so in that way, AI truly is artificial, while markets are composed of real human intelligence and the millions of judgments that market participants make. And so sure, you know, AI and algorithmic trading can help the execution of trades, but there's no reason to think that AI should fundamentally influence the way people think about stock prices anytime soon, at least. So the market really is this fantastically complex, you know, so much so that no one knows exactly how much a particular piece of information impacts a price because there are so many other simu- uh, simultaneous inputs. And I think, Ryan, we see this a lot. We hear news about a particular company and we're like, oh, that's going to, the, the stock price is going to shoot up because yeah. of that. And then like it goes down and you're like, wait, why? Or you'll hear bad news. Layoffs is one thing. We saw this last especially in the winter, yeah. all these all these layoffs of companies, and then the next day their stock price would be up. Yeah. You know, 10%. You're like, wait, they're not doing well. Why is the stock rising? So yeah. I think, you know, Booth is getting at this point here. It's a complex system. Um, and the, the coolest thing for at least Booth is it's free and available to all to see. It's not hidden behind closed doors. You don't need to, you know, be this investment banker who has access to all this private information. The market is public. You can you know, go on to any financial site and see yeah. what it's doing, how it's performing, all that stuff. So, yeah, you know, Zach, this isn't just Booth's opinion. You know, there's plenty of evidence to support it. In fact, it, you know, it's a 50 you know year old theory that only gets more proven with each passing year. So, if you just Google efficient market hypothesis, you'll see. But better yet, you know, you could ask ChatGPT. Yeah, there you uh, go. Chat GPT <laughs> yeah, use to AI it. to have it explain it for you. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what's the takeaway here? Um, you can have a good experience without worrying about all of that stuff. Based on nearly centuries worth of data, the stock market has returned about 10% a year, which is a 7% above, you know, 7% above inflation. Um, that was true before and after computers, before and after the internet, and even before and after the Second World War. It makes sense to uh, to to him, you know, David Booth, that it will continue to be the case after AI because our AI is aggregate is aggregate intelligence, which includes artificial intelligence and betters it. Yeah, you know, I don't want the, I mean, I think AI is great. And to be yeah, clear, you know, exactly. we're, we, can, we can celebrate the innovation that this moment may represent while also being critical, I think, of some of the people who think that it's going to, you know, currently, at least in the States, going to do more than, than you know, it's, it's promise. And so, yeah. you know, these ideas, they're not contradictory. And so as Booth mentions, you know, he has witnessed over and over during the past 50 years of his career, many players and who will try and take advantage of the newest advance in technology to improve their company and also build new ones. And so by buying the market as a whole, you can you can have a piece of these publicly traded companies without having to guess mm-hmm. which one is going to get AI right. Yeah. You know, and that's I think that's the real key. Sure, if you so happen to pick the one stock out of the thousands, yeah, that's great for you. But the likelihood of that happening is 
it's just impossible. It's impossible yeah. to do that. And so, you know, and, and if Booth hasn't convinced you, if we haven't convinced you, ask ChatGPT. And so this is funny because Booth did this. <laughs> he said, he asked ChatGPT, he said, is it safer to trust the market price mechanism than rely on an AI model to find mispricing stocks and bonds? And this is what... Um, Chat BTD, Chat B, GPT. Man, it's very really, hard to say. They gotta change it. <laughs> it's Chat GPT. Man. Yes. Yeah. Here's what it said back to him, and and this is you know he he put it in quotes on the article. It says it is generally safe. Sorry, it is generally safer to trust the market price mechanism than to rely on an AI model to find mispricing in stocks and bonds. The market price mechanism is based on the collective actions of all market participants. It incorporates all available information into asset prices. As a result, it is difficult for any single investor or AI model to consistently outperform the market by identifying mispricings. So, if you don't trust David Booth, if you don't trust me or Ryan, at least trust AI himself. <laughs> <laughs> Old chat GPT. Chat, chat GPT is saying that even AI, even... AI himself. I don't even know what do you call it. Yeah, itself himself. It? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, AI is saying the market is too complex for that. Yeah. You can't trust AI. So, and you know, there's going to be tons of products coming out over the next couple of years oh, using yeah. AI models. And yeah, it's going to be tempting. A absolutely. And with but no proven know, track record. And there have been models like that for years automated sure, computer absolutely. trading. You know, it might not be as sophisticated as things now, but. You just you don't know which information. I think I think that point is is really good. You don't know what information is the information to make a stock tank or make a stock sale. And because of that, we need to be prudent with the way we invest and invest diversified, capturing the whole market in in the right asset classes. So yeah, um, but yeah, good article from David Booth and Financial Times and. Uh, I think that brings us to our prescription, Ryan. Is yeah. that right? Uh, yeah. I was going to say maybe we should ask ChatGPT if if people should just invest only in the SP 500. It would be interesting to see what. Oh, yeah. What, what, maybe next time we'll. What it would say. Well, yeah. Maybe we can do that. We can make a new segment on the show. Yeah. Is Chat ask GPT. ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got kind of an interesting RX of the week. Um, you know, the main thing is when, when you're facing an important financial decision, Zach. Um, I like to tell people, hey, wait at least overnight to make it. You know, if you're talking about spending big time money, at least give it the night. Don't make a decision right away. Because, you know, pressure and emotions can lead to a wrong decision. And when the decision needs to be made right now, you know, if you're getting pressured into a sales pitch, think of, I mean, anytime you're at a car dealer, right? Or uh, I hope not, but if you're like the timeshares, you know, the decision needs to be made right now. You know, the answer should probably be no. That's what my opinion is. My dad taught me that. Yeah. Because, um, you know, you also want to consider waiting at least a week, you know, before you buy is what I would typically suggest. When it's a big time purchase, it's going to, you know, be a lot of money. Because, yeah, when, when you have to make the decision right away, you can make a big mistake. And typically nothing needs to be made right now. And if someone's presenting that to you, uh, it's probably wise to walk away. There's probably a reason why they want you to make that decision right away. Right. And, you know, I would say it also applies to anything, any wants, you know, I even do it yeah. for, for books. I mean, I don't know if sure. we got a lot of book readers out there, but I, I'm like, I'll get interested in a book, want it, need it, mm -hmm. you know, I'll buy it. And then it'll, I, I won't read it because I've got 12 other books that I want to read. 
And so creating lists and looking back on those lists a week later and like, oh, I don't really need that now or I don't have time to read that. So I think any decision, any financial decision, you know, that's not a need, but like a a want to write it down and revisit it in a week. I think it's a great, that's a great prescription, Ryan. Thank you. So insightful. Yeah, especially it's just, it's easy to, you know, get caught up in decisions and emotions and you just got to be careful. A lot of what we talked about today is based off of, hey, don't make your decisions off of emotions. Um, because you're going to make a mistake. Um, we are emotional beings, but you do want to be just cautious. Yeah. Just be cautious. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was that was a good one. So, that was a fun show today, Zach. Um, it's always fun with you, Ryan. Yeah, it's always fun to get the, the young guys in here, spruce it up a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we had, I mean, we had pretty heavy topics, though. It yeah, I know. Like it was we... kind of, yeah, people are going to fall asleep. Please don't, you know. <laughs> fall asleep at the wheel, especially if you're driving, folks. But, yeah. you know, good stuff. Um, but this has been this week's edition of Money MD. You know, tune in next week on moneymd.net to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check out our website, moneymd.net, and send us your questions. Please, we love answering those. But you can also give us a call here at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great rest of the week. Yeah, have a good one. Program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.